Welcome to the podcast, whatever we're calling this. Today, as usual, we have a special guest, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here to talk to you both. Dr. Fernandez, uh, we have seen, and I'm very curious what the classes that the university is offering. And I realized that uh, next semester, you're going to teach this class, Digital Rhetorics and Culture. Now, go ahead. No, what, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my, my question is, uh, as everything right now is in a digital form, so I was kind of curious how we can read digital rhetorics and how we can understand digital culture. Yeah, that's a great question. So as like as a digital rhetorician um, and a cultural rhetorician, I'm really interested in how uh, people navigate and understand their environments and how they make and make sense of the, the world around them through culture and technology and what the relationship of culture and technology is. Uh, how do digital platforms mediate the way that we understand identity and how we understand community? Um, and so in that class that I'm teaching, um, I'm teaching at the undergrad level uh, and I'm teaching digital and cultural rhetorics at the graduate level. We're going to be looking at how these digital platforms, basically how we both understand them and how they in turn uh, condition and facilitate the way that we understand things like uh, identity and race and gender. Because these, uh, especially through um, like algorithmic environments. Uh, so that is my main focus. And I, I like to think about it as a way of, we're so steeped in these things. We're so steeped in our communities. We're so steeped in these, these technologies that we use every day in our research and our teaching and like in our everyday personal lives. And I like to think about what the work that we do in our class is a way of like slowing down and taking a look at well, what does our learning management system say about grading? How does that facilitate the way we understand grades? Or how does content moderation on Twitter or TikTok affect the way that we understand certain like values that we hold? Uh, so that's what I like to think of it as, as a way of like slowing down and actually looking at the world around us and like the, these digital infrastructures um, and how they affect the knowledge and way that we understand the world. Dr. Fernandez, let's suppose that I enrolled in your class. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited and I love memes because I <laughs> that memes, uh, they have a strong connection between text and image. And we can expand that also to, to, to the pre-modern era. Uh, now, if I decide to take your class uh, as an undergrad and graduate student, what will be your advice to understand identity in means how these maybe media platforms can, uh, as you mentioned, can promote or control which information is produced, which one is published, which one is not present. So thoughts, advice, and guidance in this weird project of, of memes. 
Yeah. So most of the research that I do focuses on TikTok. So like the types of like memes and like viral trends that I, that I look at are really multimodal type short form videos. Like we all kind of know the, some of these trends that go around on TikTok. And a lot of the way that I look at it, especially in my research where I've spoken with very successful content creators from various historically marginalized backgrounds. So they have a relationship to the way content moderation polices the way that they make jokes about their communities or about whiteness and oppression. And one of the things that we that we look at when we when we look at memes in in my classroom is we we really take a moment to see like all the little pieces that come together, all these different like multimodal components that come together and have like histories on the internet. So like certain types of sounds have a history for how they're like where they come from and how they how those those pieces of of the whole greater whole um well they have like histories in specific communities but then how do those things change when other people take them up memes really change uh very the the meaning of a meme really changes based on who is sharing it um which that's a very like rhetorical perspective like thinking about how text comes together audience and author relationships. And so when we look at, uh, for example, a lot of the times that when I've I've talked with uh, content creators on TikTok, they'll talk about how in how they'll find that they're how like, let's say like queer content creators will make certain jokes that they then get like policed for on the platform for certain reasons they find that and part of my research is asks like how do you know why you're being targeted for moderation if you don't feel like you're breaking the rules and then they'll talk about how they'll see straight content creators make similar jokes do similar trends and not be as policed on the platform and part of what we look at is like why is that is it about the rules is it about the platform secretly suppressing content or is it about other platform users sending like false reports and we look at similar things like that when it comes to race and cultural appropriation in memes. So that's really where my focus is when it comes to memes uh, and how we can look at basically memes not being like being really multimodal, being really collaborative, having like all these like different connection points to culture. That when we actually like get to like making a new one, you're in so many conversations already. Dr. Fernandez, uh, I just want to keep talking about memes, but that's not the main target today. <laughs> and so let's suppose that I'm an undergraduate student. Uh, I want to get a job when I finish. And I really like what you are doing with social media and platforms and online environments. So as an undergraduate student, I know that I need to understand how online environment works just to be able to create an identity for maybe a company to promote a product in, in this kind of environments. So what kind of uh, skills can undergraduate and graduate students learn from your class just to be able to explore and, and use wisely uh, online uh, platforms? Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't consider myself to be like a how to do brand uh, awareness and brand and content creation class. 
But a lot of those skills are developed in through the process of developing greater rhetorical awareness. So the idea of how do certain genres translate in different um, platform environments. There's different types of, as a writing teacher, as a rhetorician, I'm, I'm a writing teacher first um, because that's, that's the whole thing that I do and I love it. Um, we can already look at, like when you look at different social media platforms, they each require different types of uh, writing awareness. Uh, Elon Musk wants to make Twitter uh, have, you know, 4,000 characters or 4,000 word posts, but right now it's 280 characters. And so that constraint and the genre of different tweets really affects the type of writing that you want to do. And so to be successful on Twitter, you have to be concise, you have to be snappy, you have to know how to strategically quote tweet and you need to know your hours. And similarly on TikTok, you have to be able to link into specific sounds to like connect to people. You need to be able to make certain types of videos. And we practice those skills in my classes. Um, and we look at how, what types of writing makes sense on different platforms. And also, how do you key into specific communities and audiences on these platforms? Because people expect very different things. One of the books that we'll read, I'm looking around my office, seeing if I can find it, but it's at home. One of the books we'll read in both of those classes is Andre Brock Jr.'s Distributed Blackness, which is about Black Twitter, which is a great book. Um, I recommend it to everyone. And it, it really helps you to see like there, we're not all on the same Twitter. We're not all looking at the same things. And so we have to have like an awareness of that when we're creating content. Uh, another thing that I'm, that I do in my classes is I'm a notorious Blackboard hater. I don't prefer the platform. Um, and this is my first semester using it and I'm not going to use it again. But in as much of a way as I have. And so in the spring, I'm going to be incorporating Slack into my classes because that's a really like common platform that people use in their professional lives. No matter what you go on to do, Slack is pretty ubiquitous at this point. Um, similar to Discord for like social circles. Um, we're going to use that to think about what is the role of content moderation in our private circles and our everyday lives, not just on social media platforms? What is the way that social media platforms like Slack mediate discourse in ways that we have to be mindful of? And also to think about what kinds of professional types of communication can we like develop and learn as students that is really useful beyond the academy. Uh, so it's about like kind of thinking, what's your, who's your audience? What's your purpose and how can you bring together your writing to meet your goals in that way? And there's all kinds, that's a kind of a lifelong skill to learn uh, where maybe you won't learn how to make content for TikTok, but you will always be aware once you develop the rhetorical awareness of like what type of content plays well, how are creators doing the work that they do? You can kind of apply that in a lot of different areas, not just for content creation, but in different technical writing fields and different professional writing fields kind of limitless there. Mm, Dr. Fernandez, what, what when you were mentioning audience, understanding what your audience is, following those examples, I was listening to this, like it's similar as, as a, well, the type of work that we do as a graduate student when we write essays, when we, when we write abstracts or grants, as a writing a strategy uh, and a writing practice, I see the whole benefits of understanding uh, digital rhetorics and understanding how to, to, to like understand the audience. Now, for 
graduate students who struggle, and I'm included in that one, who struggle <laughs> on, on writing their dissertation, uh, and you're an ex expert on writing, what are like, besides not investing enough time on writing, because that's one of the main issues that I have realized, what are other tips that you suggest our graduate students need to focus when they are uh, designing their prospectus or grant proposals or abstracts or anything connected with writing? Yeah, so the that's a great question. I feel like everyone feels that way when they're doing their dissertation and when they're doing their thesis. And part of the reason for that is it's a very specific genre that you will do maybe once or twice. And then as soon as you're done with the dissertation, that genre doesn't exist for you anymore. You've done the thing and you move on. Similar with like a master's thesis. And there's transferable skills in all of these things where you know, you you set up in the same way that a proposal, you establish your exigence, you outline what the conversation thus far has been, and then you explain, this is what I'm going to do, and here's how I'm going to do it. Those are common academic moves that translate across writing genres, academic writing genres, because you're setting up the stage for what's been done and saying, here's the intervention that I'm making, uh, which is not the easy thing to do. Um, but what I always want to stress for people who are in this process is like your dissertation, your thesis, it's going to be assessed in a, by, you know, a specific group of people. The number, the first thing I did when I started writing my dissertation was look at the dissertations of all of the people on my committee, because I, that's the dissertation version of the dissertation that they knew. So I was like, okay, I will learn what they what the, what they think is going to what they think the genre is, and that really helped me to kind of get kind of a sense of the back, like kind of like the outline of this thing. The other thing to kind of keep to be generous with yourself is as you're like doing this like long form research, or you're doing it, or you're writing like this long project that it's messy. Um, and that's like the advice that nobody wants to hear because we all know it, which is that the first draft, the first like, the first couple, like the first like round of writing is not going to be what it will be at the end. Revision is so important. And writing is such a cognitive process where you're figuring things out as you're writing. So we don't think point A to point B. We think really recursively. We think in circles. We have to figure things out on the page a little bit. So it's okay if it doesn't make sense at first. Um, but knowing your audience will always help you to kind of get going. Uh, and it's a lot easier to write when you have something on the page. So just being like, just trusting that everybody is doing a weird job at first and that it doesn't have to be perfect is really the best thing that you can do. And that's what I like to teach my students. It's like, if you're feeling pressured, you're going to have less of it. You're going to have a harder time writing. So release the, the anxiety that it has to be perfect. Uh, about specific genres, it's always good to find examples for like grant proposals, looking, learning the genre, learning what people want, tailoring things to be as specific to the rhetorical situation as possible. If a grant doesn't suit your research, you're going to have a harder time writing toward it. But if it actually connects to what you're doing, Write specifically about that and do your best to communicate it for, to do the best to communicate the significance of your work. Too often we explain what it is 
and what we're doing. And then we don't take that extra step to like hold the hand of our reader to explain like, here's what the implications are. Um, I just like a small example. I did my research on TikTok content moderation. And when I was on the job market and when I was talking to people about it, inevitably I would get the, the question, but what happens when TikTok dies? Like what happens when like TikTok shuts down? And at first that was a hard question because I'm like, well, it can't, it can't shut down before I finish my dissertation. That would be, that would be unacceptable to me. But at the end of the day, I can draw the, the lines from what TikTok content moderation has in common with content moderation on other platforms. And also what we can learn about how people feel about content moderation. That's ubiquitous, not just for across like other, uh, other social media platforms, but also has implications in my field for writing assessment, how we grade writing, how we communicate standards of assessment to students. So making sure that you can explain why things matter, that's like sometimes the hardest part. But once you have that in your pocket, a lot of things open up. Oh, thank you for all those suggestions, Dr. Fernandez. I know that Isidore, you have a question, right? I have a question is is related to your previous questions, to Guillermo's question. I'm kind of wondering, like, how is the, how are going to be students in terms of, like, producing or analyzing videos or on, on watching? Like, are they going to be, like, producing videos? Because I know, like, nowadays, like, especially undergrads, they're constantly, like, producing videos on TikTok and perhaps, like, older people or than undergrads. Like, we are enjoying more, like, analyzing that aspect. Like, how is going to be the balance? On that? Yeah, so I tried, so I, I'm teaching a digital rhetorics course this fall as well, and uh, I have wonderful students. They all did very thoughtful things, and they are also so burned out on technology after the last couple years of the pandemic that they were grateful to find out that, like, we're not going to be producing content every day. We're not going to be like in iMovie using these technologies all the time because that's stressful. And part of what I like to teach students is that analyzing is one of the first steps to producing. And so now I have students who like at the end of the semester, they've created really, really cool like multimodal projects. But I've, I try to remember who I was as a student. And even though I'm like very entrenched in these things now, I was very intimidated in writing classes when I was asked to do anything but write because I didn't always have like the accessible technology. Like my computer would sound like it was like a rocket ship taking off when I tried to like edit videos in it. So I wanted to try, I try to be mindful of the fact that like creating videos with your phone is more accessible now, but it, it does also like stress students out. But when we're talking about videos and producing videos from a rhetorical lens, the analysis portion where we like learn the genre, where we like take it apart and like see what things are and what they uh, mean and how they relate to various concepts in digital rhetorics about like identity, authorship, uh, agency. We can then kind of see how like analysis is part of production. And then we, then the, their students are much more confident when I say, all right, let's do something a little bit creative now. So. Yeah. And they're really thoughtful because like they're most of the students I have, they're all on TikTok, 
but not many of them actually post on TikTok. So they're, they feel very, uh, when I, I wasn't surprised in when they had like a lot of opinions about TikTok, um, even when they're not making them. And then at the end, they're like, okay, I, I think I can actually make it because like, I'm always watching TikToks. So in that way, thinking about the relationship between analysis and production is like a very rhetorical move, I think. Dr. Fernandez, uh, now I want to create a, a TikTok account. I do not have one. I'm going to open <laughs> one. Uh, it, it, you, you have uh, showing us the benefits of analyzing uh, to be able to produce something. This is something that, that as a graduate student, sometimes we want to produce, but we have not analyzed the content, the style, neither the audience. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for your suggestions. Thank you very much for sharing your work. And I don't know if you would like to share your TikTok account with us so we can include it in the description of this episode or maybe the TikTok account of your class. I don't know how you, you work with that part. Um, I don't actually have like a public TikTok currently, uh, which is the irony of ironies, I know. But if, you, if people want to follow me on Twitter, um, I can share my handle for that. Perfect. Thank you very much, Isidoro. Thank you very much, Dr. Fernandez, for participating today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for your sharing your insights with us. Thank you.